this year when companies across the U.S. and beyond are doing some soul-searching. After the killing of George Floyd, in workplaces across the country, there were really difficult, probing conversations all the way up to the CEO and board level about what companies were doing, whether they were doing enough to address systemic racism in their own workplaces and in their own staffs. And I think they can learn lessons from the story of Coke. Our colleague Jennifer Maloney covers Coke. And the story she's talking about starts well before this current moment in 1999. That's when the Coca-Cola company got sued for systematically discriminating against its Black employees. Coke settled the lawsuit, and afterwards, the company promised to change. And it did. Over the next decade, Coke became one of the most diverse companies in corporate America. It showed how a big, global company could get diversity right. And then, Coke showed corporate America something else. It showed how easy it is for that progress to come undone. Coke stopped paying attention. There was a feeling at the company that the racial diversity problem had been fixed, and they took their eye off the ball. Welcome to The Journal, our show about money, business, and power. I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Thursday, December 17th. Coming up on the show, how Coke tried to build a fairer workplace and what we can learn from its successes and mistakes. This episode is brought to you by Global X ETFs. Looking to invest? Start your journey by exploring exchange-traded funds with Global X ETFs. Exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, create baskets of stocks, bonds, and other assets that you can buy in a single trade. GlobalX specializes in ETFs that track emerging trends, like the rise of artificial intelligence, as well as strategies aimed to generate income potential. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to discover how you can get started. Coke's decision to become a more diverse company wasn't exactly voluntary. Just over 20 years ago, it got sued by this woman. I'm Linda Ingram Lewis, and uh, yes, I kind of am the person that's responsible for this. Linda worked at Coke for much of the 1990s, tracking sales for the company's most popular drinks. She was the only Black person on her team. And she said that one day, something bad happened to her at work. I was unfortunately called the name, the N-word, during a meeting with peers, and uh, that was the very beginning. I did not know that it was affecting as many other people, but I suspected that it was. But still, no one would ever believe that the company had these types of employees employed at the Coca-Cola company. Linda found out that she wasn't alone. And she also said she discovered that Black employees at Coke weren't getting access to the same opportunities as their white colleagues. So Linda and three other employees sued Coke. Our colleague Lauren Weber has been looking at that lawsuit. They said that Coke was systematically discriminating against Black employees in areas like performance evaluation, compensation, 
promotions, hiring decisions, and even in terminations. In other words, that Black employees were disproportionately hurt when the company went through layoffs. The lawsuit threatened to become a huge embarrassment for Coke. The company never admitted the lawsuit had merit, but it did settle, and for a historic amount. Coke ended up settling that lawsuit for $192.5 million, which at the time I believe was the largest race discrimination class action settlement in U.S. history, and it's still one of the largest. And the most important part of the settlement was a requirement that there be a seven-person task force that would meet regularly, keep an eye on what Coke was doing, make recommendations, and also report every year to the court on Coke's progress. But Coke said it would do more than just comply. The company also said it was going to become a gold standard for corporate America on issues of racial equity and equality. Then came the hard part, actually making that transformation happen. The bulk of the changes took place in Coke's HR department. They made a lot of changes to their performance evaluation system to make it more fair. Performance evaluation, which we often sort of think of as a a backwater of HR. It's a process nobody likes. But performance evaluations then have a cascading effect into everything from compensation to promotion. The cascading effect that flowed from the performance review was one of the key things that Coke needed to fix. It had to make sure that top performers were getting the raises and promotions that they deserved, no matter their race. The first step was for Coke to start collecting lots of data about its employees. They were collecting demographic data, of course, so that they knew somebody's race, gender, etc., but also just what were the proposed ratings or what was the proposed bonus, what was the proposed raise, who was being considered for various slates for promotions, things like that. Then, Coke would compare the performance evaluations against all of that data to check that racial bias wasn't creeping in. They would analyze this data before any decisions were finalized. That was critical. Decisions like, why is a 3% raise going to a Black employee while a 6% raise is going to a white one? If the company found discrepancies, managers were held accountable for correcting them. Coke even tied executive pay to improving the diversity of its workforce. So this was Coke's new system, but not everyone was happy with it. The executive who oversaw all of this, Steve Bucarati, talked to Lauren about how some employees reacted. Steve said there was a time when white men at Coke were walking on eggshells after the lawsuit. And he would say to people, I know you feel like you're not being validated, but this is not about invalidating you or your contribution. This is about validating everyone, and not everyone has been validated at work. One thing that he emphasized to managers was the best person should get the job every time. Full stop. That's what he told me. Because often people believe that diversity means that a less qualified person will get the job or an underqualified person will get the job. And his point was that efforts around diversity should improve meritocracy in a workplace, not dilute it. Still, a lot of employees saw these changes and the supervision of that task force as a burden. They were quietly looking forward to 2005 when the task force would finish its term. But that's not how things would play out. A year before the task force was supposed to end, Koch got a new CEO. I'm Neville Isdell, formerly chairman and CEO of the Coca-Cola Company. Neville is a really interesting man. He was 
born in Ireland but raised in Zambia. So he grew up in Southern Africa. His father was a police executive in Zambia. And one of his jobs had been transferring control of his department to black Zambians around the time of Zambian independence. You know, his father was a big influence on him. He was a fingerprint ballistics officer. He, he ran that side of the police and train up Zambians when people were saying that they didn't have the ability. And I saw him turn it around. He was the last white policeman in the force. Later, when Neville went to university in South Africa, he campaigned for student government on an anti-apartheid platform. He already came to these issues with a very deep commitment. He just happened to be a very, very good choice for a leader who would champion the racial equity work. When Neville was a year into the CEO job, he made a decision that nobody saw coming. He asked the court to extend the task force's oversight of Koch's racial equity work for an extra year. Neville told me how it went down. So we met with the federal judge, and I said to him, well, actually, I have a request. And he said, well, what's that? I said, I would like you to continue the oversight for one more year. And he said, I beg your pardon? I said, yes, I I want you to continue for one more year. And he said, why? And I said, well, yes, we, we have complied, but in my view, we are not committed. For some, the objective is to get rid of the task force, whereas my objective is to make sure it never happens again. And how did people react inside Coca-Cola when you made that decision to extend the task force? I think some people thought I'd taken leave of my senses. Um, But then, of course, my objective was to shock those people into saying what we're serious about. And I was doing this to give the strongest message I could, which was non-written, non-verbal, but subliminal to everyone, that we were going to do the right thing in the future. It seems extremely rare that a CEO and chairman of a company asks for more oversight. Well... You know, if you do the same old, same old, then you'll get the same old, same old results. So I I like thinking outside the box. I don't always go outside the box. I'm not wild. But I like thinking outside the box and, and thinking of other ways of doing things, because that's how you move forward. For Coke, this combination of committed leadership at the top and rigorous data analysis worked. By 2010, a decade after the settlement, 15% of Coke's U.S. executives were black, Before the lawsuit, it was just one and a half percent. And Lauren says more diversity may have benefited Coke's business, too. Some of the leaders we talked to also said that Coke's turnaround, Coke's business turnaround, was working as well. And some people said we had more of an open debate culture. We had a more inclusive culture. People were more comfortable with each other, more comfortable disagreeing. We had more points of view represented at every meeting. Neville says that's an important lesson. Racial equity is more than just the right thing to do. It's also good business. And he said it's up to the company's leaders to hammer that message home. The message has come from the top. It sounds big-headed, possibly, but that's what leadership's about. The message has come from the top. And people then, by and large, march to that tune. And I think that's pretty much what happened. It's the clarity of the message and the fact that you're seeing to be walking the talk. That's, that, I think, is what it's all about. So Coke had figured it out. It had managed to make its company a lot more diverse in just a few years. 
Then, the big question became whether Coke could hold on to those gains. That's after the break. This episode is brought to you by ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people, for employees, for developers, and even your customers, removing frustration and supercharging productivity. On our intelligent platform, AI isn't just a promise. It's happening today. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Tap the banner to learn more or visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. This episode is brought to you by Citizen M. There's no better feeling than finishing work for the day, sipping an ice-cold soda, and nuzzling down into a Citizen M bed. Recharge your brain and batteries at Citizen M Hotels. They're in the tech cities, Menlo Park, Miami, Austin, New York, San Francisco, where people like you work, sleep, and play. Book now at citizenm.com slash the journal. Coke had succeeded in building one of corporate America's most diverse workplaces. But then it started to lose ground. It started with something that in many ways was really positive. In 2007, Coke rolled out a big new initiative to elevate women at the company. And leading the charge was the man who'd soon become Coke's new CEO, Mutar Kent. Mutar had noticed a troubling fact about Coke's workforce. Here's Jennifer. While women made 70% of the purchases of Coca-Cola products, they made up about 23% of the leadership positions at the company. So he wanted to address this gap, and he launched a very ambitious program to build a pipeline of women leaders that would come up through the company into the upper echelons. And he set a target of... 50% women at all levels of the company, including the very top levels of the company. And he wanted to achieve that by the year 2020. In other words, by this year. With such ambitious targets to meet, Coke swung into action. The diversity teams in the company, the, the people whose job it was to be working on improving the company's diversity, they had to shift their focus and energy toward meeting that goal. So the folks who had been working on recruiting Black talent and other people of color and promoting and developing them shifted their attention and energy toward building this pipeline of, of women. So Coke shifted its focus, and it also changed something else. For several years, Coke had been publicly releasing racial data about its workforce. So up until 2011, every year in annual reports, they disclosed representation by race. Black and African-American representation, Hispanic and Latino representation, Asians. They stopped disclosing that breakdown after 2011. They instead disclosed an umbrella figure that they called multicultural employees. And this included all people of color at the company. And that umbrella figure continued to increase over time. So it appeared that diversity was improving at the company over time. Why did Coke stop releasing that data? 
They say they did this because these were global reports, and so the detailed breakdown of races in the U.S. wasn't relevant for a global audience. Some former executives told us that, at the time, Koch's leadership believed that either the racial diversity problem had been solved or that it was a country-specific issue that was being addressed by the company's U.S. leaders. Koch's decision to stop publishing detailed data on race masked a growing problem. On the surface, things looked good. That new umbrella number for multicultural employees was rising. But it hid the fact that Black representation at Coke was actually falling. Here's what was happening. In the words of one former diversity chief at the company, Coke became a leaky bucket. The pipeline of African Americans that was sort of slim to begin with started to erode. So they were really good at bringing people in, but they couldn't keep them. Part of it may have been that Black executives didn't see growth opportunities. The company wasn't good at kind of helping them develop their careers, chart their path for sort of ascending through the company's ranks. And particularly among the leadership ranks of the company, Black executives were disappearing. They were being recruited away with high-profile jobs at other companies. What has Mutar Kent said about Coke's record on diversity while he was CEO? He said that during his tenure, the company was focused on building and retaining a diverse global workforce. He said that there is no doubt that he had more work to do. I should also note that his women's initiative made a lot of progress. The share of women executives at Coke rose from 23% in 2008 to 35% today. So they didn't achieve their goal of gender parity by 2020, as they had hoped, but they still did make a lot of progress. But while Koch's work on gender was moving forward, Black representation would hit another major setback when Koch went through a big restructuring in 2017. At this point, Mutar Kent was about to step down and a new CEO, James Quincy, was coming in. Sales were falling, and Koch announced that it would be laying off more than 1,000 people. Koch says that it did an analysis beforehand to make sure that no single racial group would be unfairly impacted by the layoffs. It determined they were fair and went ahead with the changes. But those layoffs, plus the fact that some Black executives had been leaving the company anyway, resulted in a huge drop. In one year, the share of Black executives at Coke was nearly cut in half. And there's a visual illustration of this. In 2016, the Atlanta Tribune, which is a Black business magazine in Atlanta, celebrated Coke with a cover story that showed 17 Black women executives from Coca-Cola. The following year, the magazine ran a very similar cover, but this time with Black male executives at Coke. The cover photos ran in 2016 and in early 2017, and the layoffs happened later that year. And of all the people in those cover photos, less than half of them are at the company today. To me, those photos sort of represent all that Coke achieved. It, for many years, did such a successful job at bringing Black executives into the company and moving them up its ranks. And now, looking at how many of them have left the company really shows how far they have fallen from their ideal. They wanted to be the gold standard. They became the gold standard. And... It's amazing to see how quickly all those gains can be erased 
in the blink of an eye. And it wasn't just that Black executives left Coke. Jennifer says that around the same time, their champions inside the company were leaving too. Several other key executives retired. Executives who were senior leaders at the company who had lived through this class action lawsuit in 1999 and 2000, who had sort of taken it to heart and become passionate advocates for fixing the problem. You saw some of these key people leave the company, and then you lost a lot of momentum. Today, Coke still has better Black representation than many other U.S. companies. But the reversal from where the company was a decade ago is stark. Today, the percentage of Black salaried employees at Coke in the U.S. is lower than it was in 2000, the year Coke settled the lawsuit. Coke has pledged to do better for its Black employees, saying that it will set goals for Black representation and leadership roles. And the company is launching new recruiting and training programs next month with a focus on Black executives. When we spoke with company officials, they acknowledged that they, in the words of one executive, took our eyes off the North Star. Companies everywhere want to become more inclusive. What lessons can they learn from Coke? The story of what happened at Coke makes me feel like it comes down to human beings. And speaking with some of the people at Coke over the years, there are executives who made it a personal mission to make a difference, and they did. They really did move the needle. But on the flip side, what I saw was that when some of those people left the company, the company went backwards. So it comes down to people. And you can put in new policies, but it has to be more personal than that. It seems like it says both that it's possible to make change, but also that it's difficult to maintain it afterward. It is. And you can't stop trying and you can't stop working on it. If you make progress for five years, if you make progress for 10 years, you can't rest on your laurels. It has to be a sustained and focused effort forever in order to keep moving forward. It never ends. The project never ends. That's all for today, Thursday, December 17th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. If you like the show, follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We're out every weekday afternoon. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.